Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast that is produced by the workers of the Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the beautiful city of Detroit. I am your host, Dan Galadner, and with me, as always, is Troy Eller English, the queen of the audio tech. How you doing, Troy? Oh, I'm delightful. How are you, Dan? I'm just good. I, I hear birds in your background. I am sitting on my front porch. Aren't you lucky? It, it's it's lovely. Lucky? Yeah. <laughs> See, my Wi-Fi is not that good. I, I can't get anything outside. I so don't that guarantee nice. that mine is that good. <laughs> so, folks, if we all of a sudden drop out, we know it's Troy's fault. How's that? Not my fault this time. That's that right. Better? Okay. Yeah. Um, today's podcast, we will be talking with Megan Courtney, our outreach archivist, about a blog post she did on our website about the Kerner Report. Now, if some of you don't know what that was, it was a report from a commission established by President Johnson in 1967, right after the Detroit Rebellion, to look at why various cities in the U.S. exploded in rebellion by Black Americans. He wanted to know what happened, why it happened, and what could be done to prevent it from happening again. This report, when it came out, became a number one bookseller. And it, was, and it shocked many when it concluded that the blame for the rebellions or riots, as they said in the 1960s, was based solely on white racism and the disadvantage that it caused to the black populations in the entire United States. It is one of the most insightful government publications on race relations in the 20th century, and it was ignored completely. Many of the highlighted problems that the report stated remain relevant today. Lack of jobs, inadequate education, racial discrimination, and police brutality remain an endemic and the war on crime and drugs has replaced any semblance of any urban policy. Tragically, the same issues that identified in the Kerner Report, police violence and inescapable poverty are root causes of the rebellions we see today in 2020. So join us as we talk to Megan about how the power of the past can help with the future of our society. Hi, Megan. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Listen, we're going to talk about some um, interesting things today for the folks. So why don't you take us back to 1967 and the formation of the Kerner Commission? I mean, why was it created in the first place? And was it really that hectic in 67? Yeah. So in 1967 is when they formed the, when President Johnson formed the Kerner Commission. And it really was kind of in response to a flurry of activity in America's cities. Um, at the time, they used the kind of terminology of riot. So in all of our documentation, you'll see that that's the term the government is using. But now a lot of people really see them more as urban rebellions, um, where Black communities are kind of rising up and saying, we've had enough um, of inequality, of police brutality, etc. And, you know, part of it was because of what happened in Detroit in, in July um, of 1967, that um, things had been uh, pretty violent. A lot of people lost their lives. Um, there was also the same year, uh, a similar kind of event in Newark. Um, and across the country, these things had been happening in 65 in Watts um, and, and previous to that as well. Uh, and at that moment, under the Johnson administration, they said, we got to figure out why this is happening and how we can prevent this in the future. Because, of course, people were very disturbed by the loss of life and, and damage to property at the time as well. Now, now we, we know things were, Detroit was considered kind of like a model city in a way with the race relations. Um, 
uh, African Americans were getting jobs, there was housing, et cetera, et cetera. What exactly was was being hidden by the local government or the news agencies to all of a sudden have this rebellion in 67? There are really some kind of interesting parallels uh, between now and then. Um, even in the late 60s, there was a lot of conversation about Detroit as kind of a city that was you know, coming back, really coming into itself. Um, what we see happening is that, you know, in the first, like during World War II in the 50s, you see this economic growth. There are a lot of um, jobs that are relatively easy to get that are becoming available. But at that point, people start to move out of the city and there's some contraction economically that's happening there as the late 60s come around. And people are engage with these ideas. The model city program is something that Detroit was a part of. And the idea was this kind of promise of a city that was um, designed with people in mind, that was for the, the future, that had a community mindset, but that kind of left behind all the real economic and racial disparities that were happening in the city. Um, Detroit was uh, like many cities, most cities in the United States, a place that had um, racially restrictive housing covenants for a long time. So black people in Detroit were mostly only able to live in certain parts of town. And some of those parts of town we see well before 67 are getting um, removed in the name of urban renewal. And so people are kind of getting smushed into neighborhoods that aren't ready for that amount of people, that don't have the correct amount of services. Um, and so the idea that Detroit is a model city with a lot of opportunity for African-Americans is in some ways true, but it's also um, in other ways deeply lacking. Um, so one of the things that I think a lot of people talked about 50 years after 1967 was this idea that people had raised their expectations, that they believed in these stories about the model city. They believed in these stories about how um, Americans were meant to live in an urban environment, that they, that they could have a human-based community, um, but it actually hadn't been delivered. And the model cities program wasn't really living up to that in the short term. So that's essentially why, you know, we, we had rebellions in 67 and there was a lot around the country at that time. Not, not, not huge like uh, Detroit, Newark, but small areas too. Uh -huh. And so, um, so yeah, right. Uh, Johnson wanted to know why, how it happened and what we could do to prevent it, which was interesting to have a commission put together right in the middle of some horrendous things going on. Now, who was on this commission and... I mean, what was, what was the conclusion of the Kerner uh, report? So just a few weeks after what happened in Detroit, the commission was formed and it was 11 people um, that were on the commission. And a lot of people describe this group as a relatively moderate group, particularly for the time period. Um, in the late 60s, there are plenty of more radical voices on the scene, but these were relatively moderate people. Um, the commission was named for Otto Kerner, who was the governor of Illinois. Um, and then there were... I think four other elected officials. Um, you have the, the head of the NAACP at the time, um, steelworkers leadership. Um, so they try to do really a cross section of um, political leaders. Uh, there's a business representative um, on their uh, community organizations in the form of NAACP. But it, it wasn't, they did, they did do um, you know, bipartisan selection of commissioners. Uh, but there was an expectation that it wasn't, it was a mostly, you know, sort of moderate voice that was happening. And in some ways, people kind of felt like Johnson was surprised by the outcome. 
Um, the commission report came out in 1968 and they actually, they published the summary. This is one thing I like to show to students. They published a summary in very small print in the New York Times. And so we get out this document and young people who are very familiar with what's happening today in activism um, haven't heard of the Kerner Commission report. So they kind of get this chance to see what the summary is and what, um, a lot of the things that they identify as causes for um, what they're calling riots at the time um, are some things we see today. Uh, employment, um, education, social welfare, and housing are the main kind of causes of, of, um, of these boiling points that they're seeing. And honestly, you know, some of the suggestions that the Kerner Commission makes are, are very vague, you know, things like increase opportunity, um, but some are pretty specific. Um, they're very specifically calling for, you know, two million jobs to be created, half in the private sector, half in the public sector, and, and kind of laying out how this can happen um, and asking for some things that we see people still talking about today, like, um, you know, eliminating arrest records as a condition for employment, things like that. So it was... I think a little bit of a surprise to your sort of mainstream white Americans because the headline of this report is institutional racism is the problem. Again, of course, I didn't read the whole report preparing for our podcast, but I read the summary and what other historians have said about it. Um, but I'm trying to wrap my head around is, is did they try to include any kind of context, do you think? Um, yeah, so I, that was one thing that kind of struck me about the Kerner Commission report is that um, they really did devote quite a bit of text to trying to explain the history of Black Americans and how we got to this point. There's, I think, 20 pages um, that deal with explaining, you know, the sort of slavery up to the present. And we've seen very successful tellings of this in a different way with like the 1619 Project and things like that. But just the fact that they've devoted so much space to trying to explain how we got here, I think sort of validates the idea that you really need to understand the past to understand what's happening in the present. So, so could, could, could we say that this is part of, this report comes out, becomes a national bestseller, number one, and we have these issues in 67 and 68 is just a, a crazed time with uh, assassinations, student rebellion, Vietnam War is escalating. Um, could, so what you're alluding to uh, here is this, this could be part of that whole white backlash that developed when Nixon was elected. Do you see that at all? I think that there is a little bit of an element to that. You know, I, the, the Kerner Commission report comes out, the Kerner report, and they offer a lot of suggestions to cities um, and states across the country. And different places take this report differently. Um, there is a portion of the report that talks about the best way to reform policing, for example, so that if there is demonstrating in your city, how do you find a better way than escalating things? But um, some places took that information as a reason that they should be investing more money in the sort of tools that police can use to suppress organizing and demonstrating. So, you know, some places, some of your more liberal cities are looking at it in one way, some of your other cities are looking at it another way. And at the federal level, it's tough because Johnson didn't really throw his, you know, vociferous support behind the spirit of, of the Kerner Commission report. Um, it, even though he formed the committee, he wasn't out there saying, the report is out, let's put these into practice. So um, a lot of communities do see in the early 70s, 
um, late 60s, early 70s, a drastic increase. Like you're saying, this kind of Nixon mentality of law and order, we need to, to get a grip on things. We need to um, squash these insurrections. You know, this, this kind of rhetoric is, is floating around. Um, and part of it does come from the sort of white people's fear that these urban rebellions are gonna spread into their communities. So this is something that we see today in conversations that are happening surrounding our current moment um, and it causes people to say, get out the big guns then, um, which is actually explicitly something that the Kerner Commission did not want to happen. There's a part of it, they, it says the, uh, the commission condemns moves to equip police departments with mass destruction weapons. And they kind of list off a couple of, um, you know, uh, potentially fatal uh, weapons. Um, talking about anything that's meant to destroy is, is not something that should be used in urban centers uh, where people live. So um, the disconnect is strange. What, what kind of takeaways did you take from the report? That obviously the biggest thing was the, the quote from, our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Mm-hmm. Um, that struck me. But what struck you that, that, that the report was talking about that we see is today as well? You know, I think there are a lot of um, things that the commission acknowledges that a lot of people weren't talking about publicly at the time, particularly white people. Um, and so the fact that the commission touches on police brutality and indicates that there has been a history of um, not only unequal policing, but also um, police work that that ends in, in police hurting people, killing people, um, that this is something that is a problem and then feeds into continued problems in urban centers. So. Um, yeah, I think that that was shocking to a lot of people who read this um, for the first time. Uh, they, as white people, hadn't experienced this themselves, and so to see it acknowledged by their own government was um, kind of eye-opening. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so you told said earlier that um, you show the Kerner Commission to students. So what is, set us up. How do you use this in a classroom setting? Well... I think it's a it's a good example in part of how archives work because um, in our collections and in most people's collections that deal with this kind of topic, it's not as though everything that relates to the Kerner Commission is in the same collection. So because it's spread out into different collections, we've got some stuff in the Jerome Cavanaugh papers. He was the mayor of Detroit at the time. We have some things in the um, like Wayne State student organizations. It's all spread out from different perspectives. You can see how different audiences are talking about the same thing and how it's represented differently between different groups. Um, the Kavanaugh stuff is cool because you can see some of that prep work. Um, Jerome Kavanaugh was involved in um, supporting the commission's efforts to gather data because he was the mayor of Detroit. Um, so we have some, you know, things like meeting minutes from some of these meetings where commissioners would uh, meet with community organizing leaders um, in Detroit, and they would offer their perspectives. They would share their experiences. Um, and so you can kind of see the questions that the commissioners are asking and how their reactions go, which is very cool to see, you know, this is the background stuff that created this end um, set of assumptions for the Kerner Commission. Um, but because we also have things like uh, those reactions in some ways to the Kerner Commission um, report, it's interesting for students to see how different people take that. It's also true that obviously if the Kerner Commission is saying that, for example, uh, unequal access to housing was part of the cause of this. We have a number of collections that reflect that as well. So students can see little pieces of proof of this. You know, they can see, um, for example, our records that relate to city planning in Detroit. 
and kind of get some practice in reading between the lines of these archival records that, for example, there's a lot of documentation from an administrative perspective, you know, the people who work in the city planning office are going and taking notes, but there is nothing for folders and folders and folders um, about the people who live in these houses or their reactions or anything like a community meeting, like just seeing these gaps, these voices that aren't in there is something that I think is very interesting to see. This is how we got to this point and this is what happened after. That's just very true about the, our archives is that we've always strived and hoped to uh, be the archive for the voiceless. Mm. And here's the archival record trying to read between the lines and push that material out. Um, so I, I love that when you're doing that with students, they're reading between the lines. What kind of reactions do you usually get from the students about the discoverable of that 50 years ago plus, 50 years plus, the, the same kind of things are going on today? Yeah, well, you know, it doesn't just happen with the Kerner Report, unfortunately. You know, I think that students have that reaction um, with a lot of our collections because they're seeing people kind of trying to improve their world and they make some progress for sure, um, but not as much as they'd ever hoped. You know, people put out these, these hopes and they don't all get achieved in a single lifetime. And I think that there is a mixture of frustration and sometimes confusion <laughs> and sometimes a little bit of hope, you know, for them to say, I guess my beliefs are part of this bigger story. You know, like this didn't come up last week. It didn't come up 10 years ago. This is something that I can be a part of this much larger movement than I realized. Um, and maybe find a way to realize some of these previous generations goals. Right, that's usually when people get uh, aware of the history that they're part of is like, they're not making this up today it's been created years ago that we must learn from and build on mm -hmm. um, exactly what the history is about. All right, I'm gonna ask you a fun question though, all right? But on your archivist lens, okay, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, slash little historian, um, and it's relative to the Kerner report. And, uh -huh. the, and, and I, I, when I was reading and doing the research for our, for our podcast, it kept popping up in my mind that here is a government publication saying, Black Lives Matter in 1968. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's what they were trying to say? They didn't use that phrase then, <laughs> you know. No, they I, didn't, no. But reading- That like, part is new. Yeah, that's new. Um, yeah, you know, I think the recommendations are, are by and large the same kinds of things that you see a lot of people calling for today. And so I think in effect, yes. Um, there is- there is a, a problematic kind of detachedness sometimes if you're looking at the text, if you're comparing um, what they've chosen to report with all of the kind of input that they've had from real human beings. But again, it is a government document. So it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that. And that's part of the reason that I think it's really important for people to kind of think about the context of archival documents. And that's why you have to add in those additional voices that are real people giving their testimony to the commission, things like that. Um, because if you just look at this document and you look at it through today's lens, you're gonna miss some things. You know, if you don't, if you expect to hear them say Black Lives Matter because you know that that's a phrase people use today, you may misinterpret the lack of it. Um, it's not that they would necessarily disagree with that, 
but I don't know what they would think about it, honestly. You know, the, the context of 1967, 1968 is drastically different um, than the context that we see today. Um, and we've learned some things and we've forgotten some things. Excellent, Megan. Thank you very much for being on our show. You're welcome. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan.